we have um, two readings tonight. And the first one is going to be Ezekiel 16, 1 through 14. And then um, I'll jump over to Ephesians 5, uh, where it says that we're married to God. Both the same idea. Ezekiel 16, 1 uh, through 14, excuse me. Hear the perfect word of our holy and perfect God. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing, nor were you rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said that while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you, so that you would become mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth. I put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen, covered with silk. I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. I think I'm going to end right there. So, Ephesians 5. If you've ever been to a wedding, Christian wedding, this is the passage you'll hear, or the other one will be um, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. But I'll read this one, 522 to the end. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
the mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord God, what a mystery of mysteries, that you who are the infinite and boundless and perfect God should have a relationship with, with us as your creature and that even you would seek to restore us from the fall and even more amazing that you should marry us, O God. Help us understand these things. Again, forgive our countless acts of infidelity and cause us by your great grace and love and mercy and kindness and patience to cleanse ourselves from our own filth and to walk a more pure life before you as is becoming your bride, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. That little passage that we read in Ezekiel, one of my favorite passages, I know it's strange, it's um, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I, I probably reference it a lot. It's just in my mind. Um, there are a number of subjects in the Bible that I, I'm passionate about. And obviously, Christ and the gospel, I'm passionate about that. And it is, fills the content of, of my prayers, of my preaching. It's just it's who, who I am. There's another subject uh, and it's this that I would say next to the gospel next to the gospel next to Christ and I know there even with what this subject is speaking about it's kind of introduced marriage I've studied marriage more than anything other than the gospel from the Bible Um, what it is how it is the parties of it the so called dissolution of it Um, marriage has been something that I'm, I'm passionate about from the Word of God. There are some things I can't figure out that are deeply mysterious to me, but it's something that ha- has gripped me. And so, what we're looking at, this is a, oh, what is it, 63 verses, something like that. It's a long, it's a long, um, what are we talking? Yeah, 63 verses. It's a long chapter. I think the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel, if I'm not um, mistaken. So, what, I, what I've done is I'm taking it. In little chunks, and what I would call little preaching portions, so little sub themes here. And I, I want to deal with obviously the, the charge here is against the unfaithful wife, as I'll mention in just a bit. But to get to that, we really need to understand the whole business of of Israel um, being married to, um, to to God. But where we are, just kind of contextually in the book, obviously um, chapter sixteen, so fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen. I think 17 will use the word allegory. So Ezekiel has been inspired by God to use certain symbolical language and metaphors, figures. And so in chapter 15, um, Israel is the uh, the fruitless vine. In chapter 16, she's the faithless wife. And then in back to 17, it's an agricultural um, uh, figure. And so what God is doing is, is not merely saying that Israel is is sinning and they're unrepentant, he's illustrating their sin. So this is, Israel is like 
the fruitless vine. Israel is like the faithless, adulterous wife. And the whole notion is, therefore, when God brings condemnation on the unbelievers and he chastises the believers among them, because there are believers among them, it will be just. And particularly when we consider that many of the people who are in the visible church at this time, Old Testament Israel, they're unconverted. They don't have any faith. It's very much like Hebrews 3 and 4. So when God brings judgment upon the household of Israel, it will be just. It will be just. It will be right. Um, The wages of sin is always death, either our death or Christ in our place, but always. It never changes. The holiness of God never changes. His hatred of sin never changes. And it, it never changes that judgment begins with the household of God first. Just because our members, our names are on the, the membership of a, a local church does not mean that we are safely knit spiritually to Christ. And if we're in the church and apart from Christ, it's judgment for our sin, which is what what God is saying. So it's very much a judgment book. And in, in throughout, the, throughout the book, we have a, a constant promise that God will seek and God will save. As I mentioned, so chapter 15 God was looking for good fruit. Remember, he says that you are a fruitless vine. I came, Jesus picks up this language in Matthew chapter 21. I came looking for good fruits, fruits of righteousness. John the Baptist says, repent you brood of vipers, produce fruits in keeping with righteousness. So God comes to his professing people. Oh yes, we believe in Jehovah. Oh yes, we love Yahweh. We love him to death. And then he comes along and he's looking for what? He's looking for the fruits of the Holy Spirit, for love, for joy, for peace, for patience, for kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. This is in Matthew chapter 7. You'll know them by their fruits. You'll know if the profession in Christ and Jehovah is real by their fruits. So they make some profession. Oh, we love God. And now God says, I'm looking for fruits. And so our life, if we are joined to God, should reflect our Heavenly Father or reflect our Holy Brother. Um, If you look at a little child they'll begin to have the accent of their mom or their dad. I mentioned this before. I know a fellow that's from New York City, and his kids grew up in Tallahassee, and they never spent a day in New York City. But they sound like they're from 33rd Street. They have that little accent of of their husband, of their dad. And so like that, spiritually, if we say that we belong to God in Christ, we should begin to reflect his image in our life. And so God says in chapter 15, I'm looking for good things, but I didn't find anything good. And so there was the absence of the good and there was the presence of the evil. But now in chapter 16, God says, not only do I not see any good in you, I actually find evil among you. And so one is the absence of good and then the other is presence of evil. And they're both significant. And this is why we brought in Uh, Matthew chapter 25 last week when we said judgment day will be in addition to the presence of evil the absence of good it's we we said last week it's not good enough to say well I just haven't done positive harm to my neighbor well good but have you done any, any positive good to your neighbor have you given them a cup of cold water a visit in prison a visit where they were sick and so he will say to those on his left depart from me there was no positive good and then now here in chapter 16 we go from the fruitless vine to unfaithful wife absence of good and presence of evil if i i want to read from uh, galatians chapter 5 
because what we see there, it's helpful to understand what God is looking for and what God does not want to see, which is the presence of evil. And there it's put under the two heads of uh, the deeds of the flesh or the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't see the fruits of the Holy Spirit in what he does see in chapter 16, uh, the deeds of the flesh. Let me read um, uh, Paul's um, letter, chapter 5, verse 19, Galatians. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. And what I'm going to say is God is going to call his bride, his wife, an adulteress. Common language, James chapter 4. So she's running off from her faith faithful husband he's the faithful husband she's the faithless wife and she's chasing all her paramours so she's an adulteress when you look at lists of sin that god finds obnoxious he finds all sin obnoxious but when you look at the various lists we have one here the one that i think of all the time is first corinthians 6 uh, 9 through 11 do not be deceived such and so won't inherit the kingdom of god immorality porneia almost always is either number one, two, or three, always. And then they'll, God, God's word off, oftentimes couples a couple of different words that, that gives us various shades of sexual uncleanness. And God will liken sexual uncleanness um, to spiritual uncleanness or sexual infidelity to spiritual infidelity. And that's why he'll refer to idolatry as spiritual adultery. And so when we come here and we see deeds of the flesh, you can almost be, it's not every time, but almost every time. Sexual uncleanness always leads, leads the list. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. That's that pornea business. Impurity and sensuality. The sensuality is there's no, there's no bounds. You will fulfill every fleshly, physical lust. And it's very much tied into the pornea idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So this is not an exhaustive list. list. It's just representative. And things like these, of which I forewarned you, for those who practice, this is the habitual practice, so we as Christians, we stumble in sin and thought, word, and deed every single day. And do genuine Christians stumble into sexual immorality? Of course they do. David did, and David's in heaven. But what he says is those who practice these things, this is the habitual practice. This is what I do. This is what I love to do. It doesn't convict me. This is who I am. Then the Bible says you are not going to heaven. I forewarn you, if this is your practice, you are not entering the kingdom of God. And then, it, so that's the, the, the fruits of this, the, the deeds of the flesh. Now, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, what God wants to see. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So chapter 15 fruitless vine i don't see any holy fruits chapter 16 it's the other side of the coin all i see is infidelity all i see is uncleanness um, all i see is the deeds of the flesh and this is among the professing people of god and so god comes now with this kind of a charge i do i i, I want to just touch on a little bit the notion of being called an adulteress is painful language to be sure i mean there's so much in the 
well, for, I was going to say there's so much in the book of Ezekiel. There's so much in the Bible that hurts our feelings. And as a preacher, I try to preach every sermon to myself. And there's so much that I go through and think, boy, that hurts my feelings. There's so much. Some of the language of God is, can hurt our feelings. Um, sexual uncleanness, physical, actual sexual uncleanness, and spiritual unfaithfulness are very, very closely associated. They're linked. The Bible links them on a regular basis. I can't say dogmatically that every single person that's sexually unclean um, is also spiritually unfaithful in that they're an unbeliever. I just mentioned King David. The habitual practice is, is another thing, but there is a link there. And so you can say one of two things. Either a person that is habitually sexually unclean that shows that they are, um, they are an apostate, they're an unbeliever, or they're grieving the Holy Spirit. One, one or two. They're a true believer that is grieving the Holy Spirit, and the Lord will chastise them off of that sexual uncleanness in order that they would walk more circumspectly with their bodies and more chastely with their Lord. So real believer grieving the Spirit, so the Spirit's going to grieve them that they would walk more chastely with the Lord. That's choice number one. Choice number two is those who are habitually sexually unclean with no conviction, that kind of a thing. They testify that they're unbelievers. And, and, and this is what they're going to get. Because fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. God will judge those that defile the marriage. But it's not a small thing. I don't mean to belabor the point. It's, a, it's an easy sermon to beat people up on because many, many of us, perhaps most of us, maybe even all of us, if you're older than 15, we've stumbled in this area. So it's not my purpose to beat up on anybody, but it's not a nothing. We live in a day and an age when sexual immorality in the church, it is like old hat, but it's not old hat to God. And this is a serious business. We live in Sodom and Gomorrah. You can turn on your smartphone right now and see stuff that you would never dream of a million years when I was a kid seeing. You just can't. And so this notion of God coming to his church and saying, you are unfaithful, you're being an adulteress, you're, you're physically, sexually unclean, and you're spiritually uh, unclean. I've, the church needs to hear this. I, it's painful for me to, to give the message because I'm preaching to the choir, but the larger church needs to hear this. The larger church needs to hear this. The Christian men and women live like sodomites and think they're on their way to heaven when God says to these people, you're not on the way to heaven but for the grace of God in Christ. So it, 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 it's terribly important. And for those of us who are married and, and perhaps we're further on down the road, road and we think, well, it's not as important for me. Well, unless you're 100, it still is important for you. But what about your kids and your grandkids? So th this is something that offends God deeply to find his wife being, um, be, being, un, being unfaithful. Now, so... I mentioned it's a large chapter. I mentioned we're going to break it down bit by bit. This sermon, very, very simple sermon. All I want us to see is that the people of God are married to God and that God is married to them. There's the formal arrangement. If you are in the church, attached to God formally by profession of faith, in this case by profession and by sacrament of circumcision, in the New Testament by profession of faith and baptism, formally. And then there is the vitally, spiritually being married to God that means you're saved you are um, a truly united to God in Christ but we're going to look at the business of, of marriage so 
God keeps using these figures, symbols, fruitless vine. And here now he touches on um, marriage. And he uses the symbolism of marriage to, to define the relationship that he enjoys uh, with, with, with Israel. Um, one of the basic things, which when we come to this passage, it, you, you know it's not proper to define a word by using the word. <laughs> I, I heard someone use this the other day, and I chuckled, because I know you're not supposed to do it. In other words, it would be wrong to say, uh, marriage is marriage between a man and a woman. No, no, I, I get the parties are man and a woman. But you can't say marriage is marriage is. You have to define what marriage is. I know that sounds silly. Even our own confession, as much as I love our confession, is it chapter 24? Our own confession does this. It says marriage is between a man and a woman. Whoa, I get that. But I wish the divines would have backed up one step. Tell me what it is. And so you can get at it by inference. They use the, the contract of, the, of the, being espoused or betrothed. So it's a contract idea, but they never really define it, define it. And so we have to ask ourselves, if God is married to Israel, Israel married to God, what is marriage? What is marriage? And if you are married or if you're fixing to get married, what is marriage? Now, I'm a minister in the OPC, obviously. And so we, uh, the pres- one of the things the Presbytery does, they do, do many things, is they own the minister. They let you in. They, they tell you who can be a minister, and they kick you out. We just kick the minister out. You can no longer can be a minister for various infractions. So when you come to be a minister, you get examined, and it's fairly thorough. And one of the questions is they'll ask, what is marriage? What is marriage? And most always the guys say marriage is a covenant, which is true. The Bible does call marriage a covenant. But again, for me, I'm a simpleton. I want to say, well, well that's true. What's a covenant? Because we use words all the time. Oh, covenant. It's a covenant. Like a covenant. Ooh, that's big. It's a covenant. And then if I ask you, what's a covenant? Well, I'm not really sure what a covenant is. It's kind of like an agreement between this two parties. Oh, like a contract. No, because that sounds kind of crass. So it's a religious contract of some sort. This is my point. I really want to unpack what is marriage and then how does God apply it to himself and to his people. Um, A covenant in my understanding, studying of scripture, is some kind of bond, union, from which flows from that a relationship of friendship. One covenant, um, one theologian calls a covenant a, 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 a bond or a union uh, formed by blood, something like that. And you see it in Genesis uh, 15. What was it? Uh, Abraham cut the pieces of the, the animals in two, and so there's the shedding of blood. It's a covenanting ceremony. So the notion is, is somehow there's this special relationship or bond instituted that's somehow sealed with blood. And the notion is, is that this relationship, a special relationship between these two parties, in this instance, God and his people, is sealed in blood. The notion is we get in our in our, in our um, traditional marriage vows, till death do us part. It's a, it's a lifetime enterprise of a relationship um, created or founded by the shedding of blood, something like that. And the covenant in the case of marriage creates a family-kin relationship. And I would argue that it's closer even than the relationship of a mother and a child. Because the Bible uses the language of, to to describe a marriage, is a one flesh 
bond. That's what a marriage is. That's what I understand a marriage to be. Yes, it's a covenant. This coming together of two parties with certain stipulations and blessings and penalties uh, and those kind of things. But, but at its heart, God, when he creates the first marriage, uses the, the language, he inspires um, Adam to use the language, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We read from Ephesians chapter 5, Christ is married to his church, one flesh. So even this is mystical to me, which is frustrating because I, I think very much dogmatically. I want to know. I want things to be black and white. But there are certain things that are beyond my full recognition. With this one flesh relationship, uh, there are three, Adam and Eve, uh, Christ and the church, and us with our wives and with our husbands. It's a spiritual amalgamation. It's something very mystical. And the two are no longer two, but they're one. They're one. It's not the physical nearness or conjugal nearness. That's a little silly. And I know people say the one flesh union is the conjugal nearness. I, I think that's silly to tell you the truth. Because then after that nearness, you would no longer be one. You would be two again. That's silly. There's a spiritual blending where, where, where you're, you're united. You, you, you are united to God in Christ. And in that way, we're united to our... So, so the marriage is this covenant. This is a, a, a covenanting before God. I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. God does that. Um, the Bible does call our earthly wife the wife of our covenant, the wife of our youth of our covenant. Malachi 2.14. This is where the old Jewish husbands were putting away their old Jewish wives in favor of the, the, the newer a better looking Gentile version and and then God says this yet you say to the Jewish guys for what reason why is God not hearing our prayers because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion your friend your closest friend and your wife by covenant so when we think of God's relationship with us, there is this bond. There is this union that God has affected by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So marriage is a covenant. Our relationship with God in Christ is a covenant. And, and more fundamentally than that, when we look at, even if you can't get the covenant language, um, marriage is a relationship. There's a special relationship with two parties that no one else enjoys. You have one man married to one woman. All the other interlopers are outside. So it's a very exclusive relationship, exclusive union. And what God is saying to his people, that he has this special relationship with with Israel. And so basically we have the creator is in a relationship with the creature, human creature, that he doesn't share with any other creature dolphins as smart as they are orcas as smart as they are they don't have the relationship that human beings have with god the bible god never says of any of the other creatures even angels with their power even the holy angels never left their first estate god's not married to them but he is married to human beings he has this special relationship and it's not all human beings it's those human beings that have found mercy um, in Christ Jesus. So there is a, there's even a bigger relation. You could say, well, pastor, even the Buddhist or the Hindu have a relationship with God. Well, that's true. They have the 
creature to creator relationship that's true but it's not as intimate as this relationship um, only Israel can say I'm married to God only the Israel of God can say I'm married to God in Christ you see that is a very very special relationship that God has with no other people so marriage is is a relationship between two parties a man and his wife and then I would argue that the relationship what we're looking at here since this is a relationship between God and man or God and a collection of people that this relationship this marriage is a religious relationship I preached a number of years ago at a young people's conference and I preached on the doctrine of marriage and I preached on the doctrine of singleness three sermons for marriage one sermon for singleness I believe marriage is religious at its core, it's religious. It can only be understood religiously. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is exactly right. Only when you're born again in Christ do you really even begin to have a hot clue what marriage is because it's re- it is religious. And so God uses marriage as this preeminent figure that he has this relationship. He could have chosen any other figures. He says, I'm your father, you're my children, true. But marriage, it is a religious relationship uh, between God and a man and what's uh, the shorter catechism question number one what's the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever and in in our marriages what's the chief end of our marriage to enjoy myself and get my own way all the time no what's the chief end of our marriage to glorify God and to enjoy God forever it is a religious relationship so so many young people and so many non-young people they approach they approach marriage and they don't, don't approach it from a religious standpoint. She's good looking and she'll say yes. Well, I hope she's good looking and she'll say yes and she loves Jesus. Because if you're not coming at this critter in a religious way, you are starting on the foundation of sand. Our good looks, I mean, what's the best looking we're ever going to be? 15 to 20? I mean, that's tops. And then from there, it's downhill. So if you're, if you're building it on the good looks, that's not marriage. That's not marriage. That goes away. Marriage fundamentally... I mean, now, well, of course, all of our husbands will say to our wives, yours didn't go away at 25, sweetie. Yours will go away at 95. I, I get that. Okay, I get that. Am I right with that? I'm right with that. But you, you get my point. We approach... And God uses this. It's a religious relationship. The way that we speak of our husband, the way that we speak of our wife, it will either redound to the glory of God or not. And, and, and God takes these figures... Uh, from it. I would argue, if I could take it from the symbolical use of marriage to our marriages, I, I believe, I can't be dogmatic, M- marriage, our marriage relationship, if you're married, is the best place to live out your faith, no fooling. It is the best place. Y- y- this is the most intimate relationship you are ever going to have. Do you love God preeminently? Will you yield to God's providence? Let's see you do it with your wife. Let's see you do it with your husband. Everything else is JV. Everything else is Pop Warner. Don't tell me you can love your neighbor. Don't tell me any of that. Let's see, how how do you work it with your wife? How do you work it with your husband? Everything else is chump change. This is really what we believe. So our marriage relationship is a platform from God for us to live out our faith. You ever watch an old husband take care of an old wife? You ever watch an old wife take care of an old husband? They're living out their faith. They're living out their faith. 
And so God uses these figures. And now, later, when we have another sermon, if we get another sermon, when God says, and you're unfaithful to me, you'll see the grief of God's heart given the magnitude of the relationship. If, if, if someone, let's say our banker loans us money to buy a house and we find out our banker is a scallywag, we're in relationship with our banker, he owns the mortgage. Do we really care that he's a scallywag? Nah, I mean, maybe theoretically because he's a human being and I wish he would find mercy in Christ theoretically, maybe. But if the closest human being to you, one flesh, is a scallywag, then what? It changes your whole life. You, you can't even think straight because of this. So God, you, God uses this figure and says, I'm married to you. He, and it's old, old Testament and New Testament. So it's a covenant. It's a bond. It's this union. It's this one flesh spiritual amalgamation, which I can't figure out. And I wish I could. It's this relationship. It's a religious relationship. I would argue our marriages and the, any subsequent children we have, our families, if God gives us a family, is one of the ways that we worship God. It's one of the ways that we worship God. We serve God as we serve our family for God's sake, for Christ's sake. And I think everything else is everything else. And we should love our neighbor and all those things. But if you won't take care of your family, what does God say? You're worse than an unbeliever because of the intimacy of the, of the relationship. Now, I, I want to read Matthew 19. Again, we're looking at the theme of marriage. When the Pharisees come to Jesus, Matthew 19, 4, when the Pharisees come to Jesus, and this is classic, people do this in the church all the time. So, master, uh, Pastor, when can I kick my wife to the curb and get the, the second? They always start with, when can I get divorced? It's just, it's never, when, hey, so how can I remain faithful and keep the vows and then stay? And how, how can I do that? It's never that. It's always the loophole. What about this? And she looked at me sideways. When can I cut her loose? Or when can I cut him loose? It's always the exception. And I will just tell you, that is the methodology of an unbeliever. Unbelievers do it that way. Unbelievers say, so how can I get around this business and get out of this thing? It's not quite as happy as I thought. That's what the Pharisees did. They never come and say, so what's marriage? How can I love my wife as Christ loves the church? What's that? What do they say? So um, when can I kick the old one to the curb and get the new one? That's always the question. And it's bad to follow after the pattern of a Pharisee. He, Jesus, answered them when they say, so when can we get the new one? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become flesh, one flesh. Therefore, they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Again, what I, I want us to see is the union and the communion of marriage is what it is because God says it. If you want to figure out what marriage is, don't go to Books A Million. Don't. Just don't even waste your time. If you want to find out marriage, what marriage is, go to Genesis, go to Ephesians 5, and Matthew 19, and you'll be golden. Go to the Bible, and you'll see the, the marriage feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. You'll be golden. All the other things, you're going to have man says marriage is this. Man says marriage is that. Jesus comes along and says, actually... What marriage is, is what God says it is. And I want you to see something. Well, that was Adam and Eve before the fall. And after the fall, you know the fall affects everything. Of course it does. 
But notice what Jesus says in Jesus' day. What are we talking, circa 30, 30 A.D.? Jesus says marriage is in 30 A.D. what marriage was when God created it before sin came into the world. That's what marriage is. Marriage in the year 2022 is what it was in the Garden of Eden. It is a relationship between a man and a woman for life. And it's a relationship between a God and, 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 and his people, his bride. This intimate, one flesh, spiritual amalgamation. That's what it is. And so God says all of these things. And now the parties, I know that's the kind of the larger. I'll take five minutes. We'll descend down to the particulars. God takes the parties. We have one man, in this case, husband, God. One woman, in this case, Israel. Polygamy is a sin. Um, the, the, were the patriarchs sinning? The patriarchs were sinning. Did God permit it for a time? God permitted it for a time. And now since those things are, he no longer puts up with it. I used to know the exact verse in, the, in Pauline epistles where he says he no longer puts up with it. Um, but it's, I'm forgetting it right now. The very first polygamist was uh, who? Uh, Cain. Was Cain a polygamist? Yes, Cain. Uh, Genesis 4. So the parties of a marriage is one man, one woman. Polygamy is out though I do recognize what we see in the Bible. And now he says, um, let's look at the parentage of the wife. And this is very important. Um, when you have people getting married, you'll have the, the, the wife's side going, okay, so where's the boy's side coming? You'll have the boy's side saying, so where does the girl's side come from? And what do they, they, what do they want to know? Who are the folks? Who are the grandparents? And so what did they do? Um, were they doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, or were they bricklayers? And so they're saying, I want my little buttercup to marry high. I want the highest for my little baby or, or whatever. You see the idea. And so God says to the, to the wife, okay, let's talk about your parentage. Did God marry high? Did God marry up? No, the exact opposite. God did not go looking for a woman that came from great stock. We go looking, and of course we do the same thing. I did with my kids. Everybody does. I want the best for my little baby. Of course we do. But what kind of stock did Israel come from? God says, your folks were Canaanites. And you're a Jew. <laughs> and God says, you are descendants of a Canaanite. And you see what he's trying to say. I married you. I made you beautiful. I made you my people let me tell you where you came from. You're nothing. You're nothing. Abraham was worshiping with Terah, his grandfather, or dad, his, his father, Terah, his dad. They're worshiping pagan idols across the river. I took a nothing woman and I made you something. Your dad's a Canaanite. Your mom's a Canaanite. That's the whole point. The Hittites are the Syrians and the, the Amorites are what? They're the Palestinians and, and also Syrians. They're pagans. They're enemies of God. And why does God say, you're just like your mom. You're just like your dad. Physically, naturally, you're, you're an enemy of God. Beloved, what's our stock as Christians? Did God marry us because we're good? Or did he go find a bunch of Canaanites and marry us? He found a bunch of Canaanites. We were the ones squirming in our sin. We were dead in our sins. So the notion is, God's saying to Israel, you didn't bring anything to the party. You didn't bring anything. I brought everything. That's, that's grace. 
But imagine if you were a Jew and God were to call you a Gentile. Remember the Jews of Jesus' day? And this is kind of my, the tail end of, of, of thing, my morning sermon about, I find racism in all stripes pretty obnoxious. And I was trying to be gentle this morning. But the Jews of Christ's day, you remember what they did? Well, Father Abraham is our father. And we're not lousy Gentiles. And, and we're disciples of Moses. And we're not ch- lousy Gentiles. And what does God say? You're a lousy Gentile. You are nothing. You're not any better. So there's no intrinsic goodness. And what they had done was they claimed their spiritual privilege and said, look at us. It's because we're so much better. And God comes along and says, no, it's not because you're better. So he talks about the, the, the natural parentage. And he's doing this to convict his sinful people that they would turn to him and love him for his grace. And then, and I know I'm going to kind of fly through this, the, the, the dad's side, the mom's side. He's speaking of the natural baseness of the person. This is a Romans 3. No one seeks God. No one does good. And God tells them um, that they were the foundling child, I think is the, is the way that I would put, put it. That the father and the mother, after the child was born, this is Israel, was pitched out into the dirt. They still practice infanticide in certain countries. You have a female, for example, in certain countries, India in certain villages, they're going to pitch you out in the dirt. Why? Because we want a boy. Because girls cost money and the boys get money. And they're going to pitch you out in the dirt. And God says to Israel, you were a Gentile that your folks hated. Your own folks hated and they pitched you out in the dirt to die. Can you imagine hearing this? And then what does God say? But then I walk by. And what did God have on this unwanted little female child? What, could, what did God have on her? What did he have? Justice or what? Mercy. I'm, I, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail because I'm going too long. Beloved, If we are Christians, since we are Christians, please be merciful. Please be merciful. Do not do the fist on the pounding of the demanding justice. Don't do that. I demand justice. You have aggrieved me. Are you kidding me? How many sins have we committed against God? And what does he do? He marries us. He cleanses us. The sins that we commit against each other, even when the, the big ones... They are picky yoon compared to what we have done to God. So just, just be careful of that. We get so offended. I need my rights and justice. Be careful of that. If God were to be, give you justice, you'd be damned in hell right now. And so would I. And so God passes by this unwanted hate, object of hate and said, I had mercy on you. And I washed you. And I made you beautiful. And what does he say at the very end? I married you. I made you my queen. Think of that. The church married to Jesus. We were Canaanites. Filthy, 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 nothing enemies. And now we're married to Christ. And he's made us beautiful. Holiness, righteousness, gentleness, goodness, And we're royal. We belong to him. Hated, hateful, hating. And now we are God's royal wife. Beloved, 
if we had a higher view of the relationship that we have with Christ and that Christ has with us, our faith is so feeble. There's a place that says perfect love casts out fear. It can't be my perfect love because I don't have any. Christ's perfect love. When we remember Christ left glory to marry us, to cleanse us, any goodness we have, any beauty we have, it's all grace. This is meant to melt the wayward bride's heart that we would be faithful to our Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.